question remains, is Santa Claus coming to town? It's been a good 24 hours on the stock market. Up, what, 600 points on the Dow? I mean, interesting dynamic. Let me just take a look at this. The Dow was up 646, 646 points, 1.87%, whereas the NASDAQ was only up 0.93%. S&P 500 was up 1.17%. And again, the Dow was up 1.87%. So the Dow far outperformed. I mean, it doubled the NASDAQ in performance yesterday. Nevertheless, you look at the pre-market and Dow is up 300 points, uh, 0.85, but you look at the NASDAQ futures and they are double. It's 1.71% higher. So I guess it's making up for yesterday. There is a catch-up going on in the NASDAQ, but it was almost like it was a, you know, a conservative move towards value, perhaps, over growth that happened there. So pretty interesting stuff. We look at the 10-year bond, 1.446%. So so a tiny bit higher than last week. Last week, we had 1.427%. So basically 0.02 higher than last week. So a little bit of growth there in the 10-year yield, but nothing to write home about. So interesting times. I mean, Jerome Powell came out and scared the markets with the increased tapering. But as someone kind of acutely pointed out, tapering is not tightening. Like you could argue, relatively speaking, it's tightening, but not in absolute terms. In absolute terms, they're simply reducing the amount that they're putting in. They're reducing the $120 billion of bond purchases. Anyways, hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. We have a wonderful panel for you here on Rare Earths, something for the critical materials people. We're happy to present to you, and it features Clint Cox, president of Anchor House, Mark Chalmers, president and CEO of Energy Fuels, and Chris Grove, president of Commerce Resources. And they give a great panel on, you know, the government's role in rare earth production, something we've discussed at length on this show, which is very interesting. You got mixed results, actually. It's the latest moves out of China, and I have a Wall Street Journal article on that. i uh, just going to read a little bit of that at the start of the news. And also, which rare earths are the most used? And apparently, 80% of the rare earths market is actually the magnetics, you know, neodymium, and then three others. And apparently, the demand is going to increase by 10 times, according to one of the panelists there. So, Pretty interesting area of the market. Again, I was in this back in 2010, 2011. It's very exciting. <laughs> that, that bull market was my first bull market. And that was exciting. I mean, every day you, it was just up 15%. And uh, once you experience that, you get hooked. And so great show coming up for you today. Let's see if the Santa Claus rally comes. It's looking Pretty good. Better late than never. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, I want to just touch on this Wall Street Journal article because it relates to our feature content here. And this just came out yesterday, a Wall Street Journal News exclusive that China is set to create a new state-owned rare earths giant. 
The move expected to be announced this month would aim to strengthen China's dominance of the global supply chain around the strategic metals. So, again, and you'll learn in this panel that rare earths like neodymium and these magnets are crucial just for, say, like the vibration in your phone and also in just a lot of modern technological things moving around, even in, your, in these cars and everything. I think if you move the seat and everything, these magnets are very useful. And just looking at the first couple of paragraphs here, this is by Keith Zai. It says, China has approved the creation of one of the world's largest rare earth companies to aim to maintain its dominance in the global supply chain of the strategic metals as tensions deepen with the U.S., according to people familiar with the matter. So this brings back a flood of memories. I mean, are they going to once again try and dump on the market? I mean, this is what happened according to what I read. I mean, I wasn't there to see it myself, but according to my understanding of the story, China took over the rare earths market by dumping on the market and lowering the prices to such a degree that all of these companies went out of business. I mean, that was kind of like their MO. So the question remains, what are they trying to do? What advantage do they have by bringing together all these rare earth companies? Now, it says here, the new firm will be called China Rare Earth Group and will be based in resource-rich Jiangxi province in southern China as soon as this month. The people said the new entity would be created by merging rare earth assets from state firms, including China Min Metals Corp, Aluminum Corp of China and Ganzu Rare Earth Group. I'll leave it to you to read more on that, but pretty interesting thing going on here. You wonder what's going on, because as we're going to see in this panel, the rest of the world is getting pretty serious about ramping up their rare earth supply. So it just seems to be a real tension area between the China-US relationship. So meanwhile, thousands protest against Rio Tinto's lithium project in Serbia, and this is by Cecilia Jamazmi on mining.com, and it's quite a dramatic image of thousands of demonstrators. So this is interesting. This is for lithium. Thousands of people in Belgrade and other Serbian towns blocked main roads and bridges over the weekend for hours in anti-government protests targeting two new laws that environmentalists say will let foreign companies take advantage of local resources. The demonstrators protested against Rio Tinto's Jadar lithium project and Zijin Mining's recently opened Kukaru Peki copper and gold mine, which they claim will pollute land and water in the Balkan nation. Now, I don't know how Rio Tinto always seems to be at the center of these controversies, these big ones. Maybe it's because they're, you know, the second biggest miner in the world. Maybe it's because of their previous actions that the, you know, activist groups and environmentalists just have their eyes focused on Rio Tinto, but nevertheless, here they are in the eye of the storm, as per usual, continuing on, holding banners that read, quote, stop investors, save nature, we are not giving up on nature in Serbia, and chanting, quote, Rio Tinto, get away from the Drina River, end quote, the protests were mirrored abroad. 
Activists gathered in Berlin, New York, and at Rio Tinto's headquarters in London. Serbian tennis player Novak Djokovic shared a photograph of the protest on Instagram and commented, quote, clean air, water, and food are keys to health. Without that, every word about health is obsolete, end quote. Djokovic wrote, I mean, these are impressive pictures. I mean, everybody came out, <laughs> came out for this protest. Now, the JADAR project, discovered by Rio Tinto geologists in 2004, is one of the largest greenfield lithium projects currently in development. It has the potential to produce about 58,000 tons of battery-grade lithium carbonate per year. The world's second largest miner greenlit the project in July and has repeatedly warned of an imminent and significant supply gap for lithium as demand for the metal used in electric vehicles and green technologies continue to soar. And as Rio Tinto's head of economics, Vivek Tilpuli, said in October that filling the supply gap will require more than 60 JADAR projects. I mean, and I imagine Europe wants this lithium supply as well. So nevertheless, though, these are not your average, you know, two dozen people outside of the, you know, at the entrance of PDAC. This is like thousands and thousands of people. So pretty interesting. And lithium, I mean, read all about it. That's on mining.com. And we have another story here on mining.com that Newmont is going to sell the first sustainability-linked bonds from a miner. And this is also by Bloomberg News. And it says here that Newmont Corp., one of the world's largest gold miners, sold $1 billion of bonds, giving it a financial incentive to cut emissions and improve corporate governance. It's the first company in the gold industry to issue such securities. The company's 10-year bonds will pay investors a higher interest rate if it fails to cut emissions or to sufficiently boost the percentage of women in its senior leadership positions by 2030. Newmont said in a filing, the securities priced on Monday will yield a 1.17 percentage point more than treasuries, according to a person with knowledge of the matter. Well, it all sounded quite amazing until, well, 2%. I guess, you know, you know, if it's double what you're making on a 10-year treasury, then so be it. The notes it is selling are a type of environmental, social, and governance security known as sustainability-linked bonds sales of which have surged in recent months, reaching a record high for the year. Global sales of the bonds are around $105 billion so far this year, a record and up from just $10 billion the whole of last year. It's up 10x, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. So sustainability-linked bonds. Now, probably a pretty smart move by Newmont. It doesn't sound like it's going to be costing them a whole lot. Uh, they're probably moving in this direction anyway, and now... All of these funds that are maybe want some gold exposure but don't want the ESG or perceived ESG cost, perceived bad press on ESG, can say, hey, Newmont's got these 10-year bonds. So interesting move from Newmont. Let's see if it pays off in their stock price. Moving on, again on the ESG front, tailings pond collapse affects world's highest human settlement. And this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. And it says here, the collapse of a tailings facility in Peru's Anania district has destroyed a segment of the main road that connects the area with the neighboring La Riconada district, the highest human settlement in the world located in the southeastern Puno region. 
So it's all in Peru. According to local media, the San Antonio mining cooperatives are responsible for the maintenance of the tailing storage facility that collapsed on November 26th. San Antonio mining cooperatives. So whoever those guys are. As of December 3rd, emergency crews had identified 10 families that were affected by the breach and reported that 29 homes experienced severe damage. Most of the houses in the area are made of corrugated tin sheets. Municipal cleanup crews are working around the clock to remove the slush from those houses and nearby roads. And we have a press release from the Puno Regional Government and the Regional Office for Risk Management and Security. And it said that following the collapse, a a broad inspection was carried out in a number of tailings ponds that were built on the district's highlands by the local mining cooperatives were identified. They said that such artificial lakes pose a great risk for the peoples of Anania. And here's a quote. To this emergency, we have to add the clogging of the Anania riverbed and the damages caused to the drinking water catchment area. These situations combined posed imminent dangers to the population. We also noticed that mineral exploitation is taking place in a disorderly manner, and we are documenting all of this in a report. And we also have a quote from the World Mine Tailings Failure, Executive Director Lindsay Newland Boker, quote, no deaths are reported, but the damage is extensive and the release heavily contaminated with arsenic and cyanide. This is the 13th of 16 expected catastrophic failures for this decade, 2015 to 2024. So I guess they were predicting 16 catastrophes by 2024, starting in 2015, and they have and they have reached 13. Now, this is a final interesting point here. Newland Boker pointed out that Peru is on the world mining Tailings failures, high-risk profile list of nations, along with Brazil, Angola, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Congo, Philippines, PNG, Mexico, Myanmar, India, Poland, and Serbia. And she said, quote, all but two of the 13 documented catastrophic failures since 2015 have been in these nations. We expect that the overwhelming majority of catastrophic failures will also be in these nations, with actuarially very high ratios of catastrophic failures to mineral production. Well, if that's the case, then I think we could say that regulations have a role to play, don't they? And that it has to do with the laws of the country and maybe the enforcement of those laws. Because if they are all concentrated in, you know, these 10, 12 countries here, then it seems to be a policy issue more than anything. Moving on. And finally, just a couple of more stories that I want to touch on here. MMG is going to shut down its Las Bombas copper mine by mid-December. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmi. Chinese miner MMG will end copper production from its Las Bombas mine in Peru by mid-December following months-long road blockades that have prevented essential supplies from reaching the operation, forcing it to wind down production. So more unrest... Continuing in the copper area, Capstone Mining and Mantos Copper are going to merge, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Check that out on northernminer.com. Barrick and Novagold continue to work on their Donlin project, and this is in Alaska, and this has been a controversial project, at least on Twitter. So also something to keep your eye on. And finally... The global shift to green steel will require $278 billion in investment by 2050, according to a report from Bloomberg NEF. So Bloomberg's NEF is saying it's going to cost $278 billion for the world to shift to green steel. And you can also 
Read that on northernminer.com. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 7th, gold is trading at $1,781.97 per ounce. That is $12 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.44 per ounce. That is 48 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $953.50 per ounce. That is $2 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,863.55 per ounce. That is $64 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.32 per pound. That is five cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading a penny higher at a dollar twenty per pound. Lead is three cents lower at a dollar one per pound. Nickel is two cents higher at nine dollars and twenty cents per pound. And tin is trading at eighteen dollars and twenty-three cents per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. And cobalt is higher at thirty dollars and thirty-seven cents per pound. That is two dollars higher than last week. And zinc is trading at $1.51 per pound. That is unchanged from last week. So zooming out, precious metals edge a little lower and industrial metals are a real mix. I would say once again, they are simply staying elevated. I mean, nickel's at $9.20. Tin is at $18.23. I mean, again, a year and a half ago, this was $6.56. So we have a triple on zinc in the last, you know, 18 months. Cobalt is basically at highs we haven't seen, uh, you know. So, yeah, I mean, again, 18 months ago, cobalt was at $13. Now it's at 30 Zinc, you know, is 50% higher. It was at uh, $0.90 cents 18 months ago. Now it's at $1.51. All very interesting. Let's see where it goes. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Deconstructing Rare Earth Elements panel, moderated by Northern Miner senior reporter Carl A. Williams, and it features Clint Cox, president of the Anchor House, Mark Chalmers, president and CEO of Energy Fuels, and Chris Grove, president of Commerce Resources. And what you get here is a panoramic view of the rare earths market and what is going on in regards to the West, and even, as they put it, you know, everywhere outside of China and That is in contrast with China and what they've been doing. Of course, they've been dominating the rare earth industry for at least 10 years, as that Wall Street Journal article pointed out. So here you're going to get a really interesting view from the experts of what rare earths are most important, which are needed by defense contractors and by car companies, where demand is heading and what's going on in China. I hope you enjoy the panel. And I will see you on the other side. Good morning, everybody. Well, we've got a fascinating discussion today. Rare earth elements, a group of 70 metallic elements that are really critical to the modern world and 
global efforts to uh, decarbonize world economies. We've heard quite a bit about this uh, that this morning um, with the symposium, and it'll be a, an ongoing feature for decades to come, I would imagine. We're privileged to have three experts joining us today to provide some insights into the availability of these rare earth elements, the supply chains around them, and the markets for REEs. Firstly, we have Clint Cox joining us from Chicago. Chris is the founder of the Anchor House, an investment advisory firm specializing in the rare earth elements market. Clint founded the Anchor House in 1995 and is focused on enhancing the understanding of this often opaque market and worked with a variety of clients throughout the IRE supply chain. Clint has a BA in English from Colgate University, so I'm sure he's going to correct any of my grammar today. Next, we have uh, Chris Glove joining us from London. Welcome, Chris. Chris is the president of Commerce Resources, an exploration and development company with a particular focus on deposits of REEs, and it advances the country's Ashram Rare Earth and Fruvrospar project in Quebec, and its upper Fur Tantalum and Niobinium deposit at Blue River in British Columbia. And by no means least, I think we have Mark joining us at the moment or, or soon anyway. I'll, I'll give Mark uh, the introduction. Mark Sharma, Mark is the president of CEO of Energy Fuels, a role he has had since 2018 after joining company as the president and the chief operating officer in 2016. Energy Fuels is a leading U.S. producer of uranium and is a major U.S. producer of vanadium and an emerging player of the commercial rare earth elements business. And is also helping to reestablish a fully integrated supply chain in REEs in the U.S. So Mark will give a unique perspective on the reestablishment of these critical metals into the, um, uh, into the North American markets. A warm welcome to you all. It's a pleasure to have you joining us on this, the last uh, of, the, uh, of this year's uh, Global Mining Symposium in Northern Miner. I think before we, we jump in there, gentlemen, to discuss these, these, these fascinating elements, it might be worth just giving a quick 101 on what REEs are. We, we talk a lot about them, but what exactly are they? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are about 17 metallic elements, 15 of which belong to the lanthanide group, plus scandium and yttrium. They're called rare earth elements, but it is something of a misnomer, that, because they're actually not that rare. Uh, even the rarest, thulium, is about 120 times more common than gold. And even the least rare uh, rare earth allium is um, cerium, and that's about 15,000 times more abundant than gold. So to call them rare, maybe something must know more. However, they are rare in the sense that what mineralogists call, they're, they're called dispersed. It basically means they're actually found, uh, but not in high concentration. So they're wildly dispersed over the planet. So hence the term where rare comes from. So firstly then, why are these elements so important? Clint, I'm going to throw this question at you. They've been designated critical or strategic minerals by a lot of Western countries in particular. Why are they so critical? Why are they so strategic? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Carl, and thanks, Anthony and Laura, for having us on. And from my view, since I've been in the industry for a while, I've gotten to see how really critical these applications are for rare earths, such as your cell phone. So, you know, every cell phone that's out there We'll be using rare earths for the vibration device, for the speakers, for the uh, camera lens. It's all going to be using rare earths for the phosphors. Um, so that's just rare earths that you carry in your pocket. When you get in your car and you drive somewhere, most automotive cars that are out there will have somewhere between 150 and 200 rare earth magnets. So that's for everything from windshield wipers, the seats, the mirrors, all those things were, you know, applications where something's moving, 
that's going to be a rare earth motor derived from permanent magnets. Then you have aerospace, you have catalysts, you have lasers, super alloys, pretty much every defense system, every weapon system, every transportation system in defense utilizes rare earths in some way, shape, or form. I mean, basically, if you just think about what's made our society smaller, lighter, faster, stronger, that's pretty much all rare earths. That's what's helped uh, enable that. So when you look at the rare earth market, it's small. It's about five to $10 billion, but it directly impacts somewhere around five to $10 trillion in global GDP. So uh, it's really got an outsized impact. And that's why I think you know, countries are looking at this and saying, okay, these are critical, these are strategic. We should start highlighting this and maybe ensuring better you know, availability of rare earths globally. Fantastic. That's a great introduction for, uh, for that. Many thanks, Clint. Chris, I'd like to come to you now. As really the only dedicated RE uh, rare earth elephant miner on the panel here, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about rare earth elements. Could you maybe talk about the deposits where they're mainly found? How are they mined? Any insights you can give as an RE miner here? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, thank you, Anthony and Laura, for organizing this. It was great to see you, Tony, in Vancouver. In terms of the key reason that, that rare earth elements are truly called and accurately called rare, it comes down to economics. At the end of the day, it's not so much how much they are dispersed. It's specifically about how which minerals uh, these rare earth element deposits are hosted in. As Candace McPherson earlier talked about massive sulfide nickel deposits, in terms of nickel, you have really two styles of deposits. You have laterites and you have massive sulfides. Well, anybody with a brain would rather find a new Voises Bay or a new Raglan instead of a new lateritic nickel deposit, where essentially your operating costs are going to be extremely problematic. That same principle is true in rare earth elements, but magnify it by approximately a hundred times. So in terms of rare earth elements, in terms of how they are abundant in the earth's crust, the reality is economics. At the end of the day, nobody gets into mining because it's fun per se. They get into mining because they want to make money at it. In terms of rare earth elements where they can be hosted by over 150 different minerals, out of that number, there are only four that are commercially processed today. And so of that four, they are in reverse order, loperite, xenotime, basnesite, and monazite. And monazite is arguably exponentially more important today, specifically because of what Clint touched on just a minute ago. Monazite-hosted deposits have the greatest distribution of these specific four rare earth elements that are essential for the manufacture of permanent magnets. Then in terms of deposit types, you have over 80% of rare earth elements from hard rock carbonatite hosted sources. And the rest of the 20% is made up of essentially primarily ionic clay deposits. And those are very different deposits that don't specifically have the rare earth elements in minerals per se. And those deposits are generally heap leach. Thing that could be said at this point in time is essentially kudos to Beijing in this regard, in that Beijing has fairly quietly been shutting down excessively, uh, egregiously polluting deposits. And that comes, that is either hard rock or ionic clay deposits, especially the ionic clay deposits in the South uh, China area. Ironically or not, one of China's bigger feedstock sources, though, is right across the negligible border, southern border with Myanmar, 
where in Myanmar, they do the same kind of heap leaching operations that they used to do abundantly in the South China area. At any rate, uh, with over 80% of all rare earth elements produced from carbonatite hosted sources, one would hope that more companies focused on carbonatites as well, just a brief mention of carbonatites. These are volcanic deposits that come up uh, from deep in the earth's crust. And so typically in terms of carbonatites in the best case scenario, you will find enormous amounts of resources. The world's largest rare earth element producer is Bayanobo in Baotou, China. That is a carbonatite. No one really knows how much material is there because it goes down for hundreds of meters. And so it could keep on producing 45% of the world's supply of rare earth elements for, uh, no one really knows, generations, basically. A fantastic oversight, uh, overview rather of the, uh, of the availability there. And I guess from, what from some of your comments there, some of, most of the rare earth elements at the moment that they sourced are in, what we say they're sourced in jurisdictions that have, say, challenges. Is that maybe the best way of this way of describing it? Well, the majority of production is still from China. I mean, Bayanobo itself accounts for approximately 45% of production. And you have the other Sichuan uh, producers, Weishan, Maomping in China. So, you know, Clint would probably have a better percentage figure of how much material China produces. As well, on this point, though, China has the biggest downstream market for manufacturing from rare earth elements, which has then led to the odd situation where China is actually a net importer of rare earth elements because of their largest downstream market for the rare earth elements. And so China is currently importing material from Myanmar, Vietnam, North Korea, the United States, MP materials at this point in time until MP materials uh, is actually successful in processing their own material internally, and then Linus out of Australia. It's not so much, I mean, uh, friendly jurisdictions, non-friendly jurisdictions, certainly that is something that governments talk about, the United States, especially, you know, in terms of wanting to reduce or arguably completely eliminate dependency upon China, as that is certainly seen as a fundamental vulnerability that is arguably untenable in most Americans' minds. And as Clint said, defense systems, I mean, you know, europium is essential for missile guidance systems. You know, do you really want to keep on depending upon a country that you may not be as friendly uh, with for these uh, resources of rare earth elements? Mark, I'd like to maybe address this next question yourself. As uh, energy fuels is primarily uranium vanadium producers, but you are, these uh, rare earth elements are often found, as, um, as Chris alluded to there, with these minerals as well. I wonder if you could speak to your, maybe your experience of processing rare earth elements from um, monazite sands, uh, maybe some of the challenges around the radioactivity that comes from uranium, and obviously that has implications for ESG uh, objectives as well. Yeah, Carl. Our business plan is different than others. I mean, actually, we're replicating what the Chinese are doing with monazite sands in China, but doing it in the United States at developed country standards. But look, at as far as in, in our case, we're basically retrofitting a uranium mill that has all the licenses and infrastructure in place to deal with the radionuclides, the uranium, thorium, and being able to process the monazite. So the challenge are, are not not high for us because we're used to dealing with the radionuclide. So that's our real key secret sauce, basically, for the way we've been able to go forward as quickly as we have. So, you know, we believe that, uh, you know, monazite uh, is a known, uh, really uh, significant source of rare earths. And the problem has been dealing with radionuclides. 
Uh, China is currently processing monazite sands, and, and, and we are currently processing monazite sands in the United States. So really, challenges, uh, we need to be able to establish our ability to separate into oxides, which is the next step. We need to secure more monazite sands, but it's a very exciting spot for our company. And, you know, we plan to emerge as a, a material significant world producer at some of the lowest cost, probably lower quartile in the space, uh, particularly outside of China. Clint, I think coming, coming back to um, Coleman Tulsa made there, Chris, I understand that Canada sort of at the moment controls around about 80% rather of global production supply. And the, the West is obviously, and, and Chris made a very valid point there in terms of some of the critical REs used in defense systems, for instance. Where is the West looking? Where, or Western countries, should I say, um, or, or maybe I should say outside of China in that respect, where are they looking for alternate sources? Where, where are the key areas, the jurisdictions around the world where either the deposits are being uh, identified or um, actually product mines actually being developed? So where are they being developed? Uh, pretty much everywhere, right? So I think South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, Russia, you know, I would say some of the places that they're not being developed are uh, Europe, <laughs> not so much, uh, a little bit in Europe, but it's very difficult to get things up and running in Europe. So I, I would say, you know, there's some stuff happening there. You know, right now, Canada and Australia are kind of the leaders. That's not just because of their markets with, you know, the, you've got the, the ASX there and you've got obviously the, the venture exchange. These are sources of a lot of exploration companies. But then you also have the realization, as Mark has pointed out, that mineral sands are a viable opportunity here. So a lot of those uh, heavy mineral sands, HMS companies have been looking at this. So that's, you know, South Africa, Brazil, uh, throughout Australia, Southeast Asia, a lot of places. So I think there are a lot of new places to look and a lot of old places to look. So there, there's, there's plenty out there. Chris also pointed out, it's also difficult to make this an economically viable venture. So that's what makes this so rare. Clint, following on from that, I'd maybe like to talk about, and I, I wouldn't want to pin you down on any prices here, but where are your thoughts in terms of uh, the markets, say, are going in the, let's say, the short to medium term? I would make the presumption for the demand is only going to increase as we increasingly electrify and decarbonize our plants and they become more important for their uses in, as you pointed out there, in uh, the magnets for, uh, say, electric vehicles or wind turbines, et cetera, uh, cell phones. Uh, technology is not going to go away anytime soon. So uh, where would you say the price is going to be heading? And maybe if you could be as bold, possibly to even make some uh, tentative projections on prices going forward. Yeah, so I'll speak more to the factors that affect the prices, because I think in this industry, predicting a price is a fool's errand. I think I've seen everybody uh, get obliterated with their predictions. So I'll, I'll stick to the factors. So number one right now is COVID. So COVID has been affecting supply chains. COVID has been affecting things like supply from Myanmar to China, which is a primary source of heavy rare earths to China right now. So they're looking for all kinds of other things. That's put pressure on trying to source monazites, which have you know, a pretty decent heavy rare earth consistency. So I think COVID has been big. The next one is global GDP. So right now, you know, for some reason, we've had a good recovery and you know, the global GDP is doing okay. When global GDP tanked back in 2008, that had a immense effect on the rare earth market. So I think as you look at some of these bigger factors, those are really big right now, COVID and global GDP. But then you're looking at things like Irma, 
uh, and this project in Europe where they're trying to reconstitute the supply chain for magnets inside Europe. So that may have some effect. Australia said, hey, we're going to offer you know, some government money. There's $2 billion on offer there. The U.S. has said, we're going to commit some money. You know, and then you have things like MP Materials, Linus, Luca, Energy Fuels, and a whole slew of juniors, you know, many of which are led by companies, you know, such as Commerce there, where they've been at this for 10 years plus. You know, some of these companies that started in 2010-11, they've stayed with it. And those are the companies that are really interesting to watch now. So when we get to these prices, I would say when prices get too high, there's a real fear that there will be substitution. We saw this in 2010 and 11. There was a lot of substitution. So I think that that is possible. Uh, even when you get to things like magnets, although it's not as effective, you can switch, let's say, in electric vehicles, you can go from permanent magnet drivetrains to induction motors. You can switch. It's just slower, longer to charge, not as powerful. You know, you lose some of the features, but that just depends on what kind of price you're willing to pay. You know, the other thing is, what are the volumes that are going to be needed? You know, I think when you look at some of the surveys that have been out there, you know, and, and both Chris and Mark know this, know this very well, you're looking at somewhere between three to 10 times the amount of rare earths that are going to be needed by 2030 to 2040 in that time frame, if we actually continue on the trajectory with electric vehicles, with wind turbines, with basically making everything smaller, lighter, faster, stronger, and hitting these ESG goals. So yeah, there's a lot of effect there. I think end users are going to be willing to pay more for ESG supply chains, for things where they can track and trace every part of this and say, this is clean and this is the carbon footprint. I think those are going to be factors that affect price. How's that? I, maybe that's no number in there, but that's the effects. Of that. No, that's all right. Chris. I wasn't expecting a, a number there. I was uh, fishing more than anything else, I guess. And Chris, I, I'm sure you've got some opinions on this as well. Uh, maybe you could sort of take off where uh, where Clint ended there in terms of some of the major factors affected the market. And obviously, as the as the as the dedicated uh, RAE miner, I'd be interested in your views on this as well. How you, where you see the markets going, where the, the supply demand curves are going to be. Uh, completely agree with everything Clint just said there, but uh, when he mentions the AC induction motor, all I can say is, is that uh, think of those uh, occasions of a burning Tesla. Uh, Tesla uh, came to market at the height of the last uh, set of rare earth element prices, which were ridiculously high, which were caused by China cutting off all supply to Japan for six to eight weeks, the Senkaku boat incident. And so specifically, what was probably the most uh, important uh, of the four magnet feed rare earth elements for at that time was dysprosium. And it went from approximately $90 a kilo to $3,000 a kilo in a matter of months. That did touch off about six years of the drive R&D globally for substitutions. And, and we do have a, another factor here now in terms of specifically dysprosium where it is much less important to the manufacture of permanent magnets than it once was. Whereas in 2009, approximately 13% of a permanent magnet was dysprosium. It's only approximately 1% in most recipes right now. And that outstanding 12% was picked up by the other rare earth elements, uh, terbium, uh, neodymium, and praseodymium. And in specifics for those prices, the prices for those last three I just mentioned are arguably at the highest point they have been in the last 10 years. They are certainly the highest they have been in 2021 
after what was a significant price spike in Q1 2021, and then a fall off in Q2, which really didn't mean that, well, it meant that everybody had overbought really arguably in Q1. So in terms of the AC induction motor, that creates so much stress on the lithium ion battery that arguably is why you had those instances of, uh, of burning electric vehicles. And so with the DC permanent magnet motor, I don't know of any uh, cars that have caught fire from that style of uh, a drive motor. In terms of where prices may be going, there is an analyst out of Geneva who talks about a demand shock and uh, Clint referenced that as well. And from the current trajectory, from what everyone sees in terms of uh, analysts of the space, I would agree with that. And uh, to go back to the previous session, you know, what Candace McPherson said about governments, you know, governments need to do more arguably. I mean, so many governments like to leave it to the, to the private sector, but you know, Eddie Greenspan, you know, and his idea that the public markets will, you know, sort themselves out, that didn't work so well in 2007 and 2008. So arguably, with every other country in the world, not uh, subsidizing uh, the development of these critical projects, such as China has always done. I mean, even, even what is purported to be the lower processing cost in China, sure, maybe lower labor costs, but ultimately, what is that number? You know, if you take out the state subsidies from the rare earth element industry in China, where is the actual, you know, uh, production costs? And so, yes, I totally agree that there needs to be more material and arguably more uh, government support. In fact, uh, what Clint referenced quickly there, IRMA, that's the acronym for the European Raw Material Alliance. And yes, they have a huge budget. And yes, their intent is to create essentially a, a vertically integrated magnet manufacturing industry in the European Union with uh, vacuum schmelzer producing more magnets for all of the European car manufacturers, ideally, and everyone else. But at the end of the day, they need feedstock. And so it's really raw material, new raw material sources that are needed. Fantastic. Thank you. That, that was a wonderful response, Chris, and I think there's a lot of information to un, unpick in that. Uh, Mark, I'd like to come back to you, which I think also follows on from what we were saying there. When we're looking for new resources, uh, energy fuels, you're the major producer of energy uh, of um, uranium and vanadium uh, or, uh, that we mentioned earlier on, and you're also looking now to reestablish these supply chains for rare earth elements in the US. What's energy fuels strategy now to moving forward? I wonder if you could talk to that for a moment in terms of meeting this increased demand for, for rare earth elements. Well, well, look, we're just providing an alternative to China on the monazite sands, and we could you know, augment that with other sources of rare earths in time. But you know, our, our focus is, is to build the book on, on monazite sands uh, at a material scale, establish uh, separation as quickly as we can, show the market that it can be done in the United States uh, at high uh, world standards responsibly and, and, and at low cost. I mean, so we're going to drive our own bus here. I think we're making great progress. And I think a number of people are taking notice of, of the actions that we're taking and the speed that we're moving. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna play our own game here, but we, we are very excited of where we're going, and we plan to be, as I said, a material world supplier at very low cost. Fantastic. And Mark, if I could maybe ask you if you could speak to for a moment if and Chris touched on this in terms of government support. We know the Chinese government would be very supportive of their mining sector, and particularly when it comes to what we would class as critical strategic uh, uh, minerals. I, I wonder if there's a, if you could maybe what would you say suggest that maybe North American governments, uh, I think 
obviously Canadian and US governments, what, what could they do more or if they could do more to support that uh, now that nascent reestablishment of the RE supply chains in North America? Well, in our case, we don't think we really need any monetary government support. I mean, if we can get it, we'll take it. But for in our case, we just need more monazite sands. We can process more monazite sands right now if we have more monazite. And, you know, working with some of our allies, there are there's there is immense amount of monazite is buried around the world right now that was discarded because it couldn't be addressed. There, th those sources are also key opportunities for companies like us. So, you know, from our perspective, energy fuels, we want monazite sands and we want a lot of it as soon as we can get it. I think that's a pretty clear message there. Thanks, Mark. Um, uh, we're just sort of coming to the end of the, the panel discussion. Would I like to just maybe, Clint, come back to you for one last question. We've had a number of uh, names mentioned there, and they do have some wonderful names of rare earth elements, but I wonder if you could maybe talk to some of the, the key ones that we should be looking out for in the future of these 15 or 17 elements. I think right off the bat, in both you know Chris and Mark, I think, have pointed to this, but it's the magnetics, right? So neodymium, praseodymium, uh, known as NDPR in the industry. So NDPR are really important for neodymium iron boron magnets. So those are critical. And then in order for those magnets to have really high coercivity, to be able to retain their magnetic properties at high temperatures, they need dysprosium and terbium. So those four, neodymium, praseodymium, dysprosium, terbium, those are kind of the linchpin of the magnetic market. And magnetic market really for rare earths is, you know, upwards of 80% of the rare earth market by value. So I think those are the ones to watch. But what's really interesting is there are a plethora of different applications that use small amounts of the other rare earths or use significant amounts that maybe aren't really well known. I think lanthanum is an easy one to point to, uh, as you do fluid cracking catalysts, is what basically allows us to use gasoline and all the other things in oil. That's all rare earths. So that's lanthanum. So there's a lot of other uses out there, but I think it's those four that are the key right now. Chris, Clint, Mark, many thanks indeed for a fascinating and amazing discussion. So there you have it, the latest on rare earths. It seems like we've come a long way since, you know, I was reading in the Dines letter in 2010 how the West was just doing nothing while China was dominating rare earths. Now it seems like the game has changed. The West has got the message, seemingly. There is movement. And now you're starting to see the response out of China as well with that Wall Street Journal article. So all very interesting. We will continue to follow this story. I hope you're having a wonderful December as we cruise into the holidays. If you want to help out the podcast, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.